We are back. And in this hour, it's all things COVID and the new vaccines. Uh, the biggest story in the headlines today is COVID and the fact that COVID is on the rise again across America. Uh, new York saw a jump in weekly cases up to 750 in August compared to 250 the month before. Now, this comes as health agencies are trying to keep track of a new and highly mutated lineage of the virus that causes COVID-19. Here to help us understand everything that's happening around COVID and the vaccines are two of uh, the nation's leading experts, Dr. Amish Adalja, who is an infectious disease doctor at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Dr. John P. Moore, an immunologist at Cornell University's Wild Cornell Medical School will be with us a little later. Uh, welcome, Dr. Adalja. It's been a minute since I've uh, talked to you, interviewed you, had you on my show because we saw this uh, really uh, incredible drop in COVID cases. But over the last couple of months, I've been having more and more friends tell me that they've contracted COVID and COVID is back in the news and their reports of the rise of the COVID-19 virus. Help us understand what's happening, why we are seeing this increase in cases and how these cases might be different from Omicron and some of the other variants that we saw two years ago. So this is the norm. This is a virus that's not going to be eradicated. There's always going to be ups and downs with this virus. And it's something that is going to become one of the respiratory viruses that we deal with year in and year out. When you look, though, at this summer versus last summer and the summer before that, we've always seen this late summer rise in cases. As it becomes hot, people move indoors. Uh, the virus transmits more efficiently indoors. So this same level or the same increase happened last summer. Uh, and it's not something that's surprising. It's something that's anticipated, at least in, in the field. And what's different is that this is increasingly becoming a more manageable illness, one that doesn't have the ability to crush hospitals. I worked today in a hospital and I saw zero COVID patients because this is getting shifted to the outpatient realm. Yes, hospitalizations are up a little, but we're nowhere near the pressure that we've, we've seen in the past. And these are Omicron variants that are spreading, but it's not like when Omicron first appeared, where there was a major surge in cases that translated into hospitalizations. We're just seeing kind of this delinkage between cases and hospitalizations because there's so much immunity in the population from vaccines and prior infections, and that keeps people out of the hospital, not to mention drugs like Paxlovid, which are highly potent at reducing hospitalizations and deaths. So we know that the guidelines from the CDC, uh, Dr. Adalja, before were if you contracted COVID, you needed to isolate for a minimum of five days. What are the guidelines now, uh, given what you just said about how this new strand, this new variant isn't as deadly, doesn't cause the hospitalizations that we saw in the past? What should you do if you now contract COVID? The CDC guidance is still to isolate for five days. And then after that, if you have to be around people to wear a well-fitted N95 type of mask. We know that some people don't do that, but that's technically still what the, the guidance is, is that those first five days are when you're most contagious. So the thing is, if you have COVID-19, yes, it's manageable, but no, you don't want to go around and spread it around to other individuals. So you should stay home during that period of time when you're most contagious. But if you can't, for whatever reason you can't, if you need to be around people, you should wear an N95 or equivalent mask and certainly wear that N95 mask 
for the, t- the the last part of your isolations from day six to 10 as well. That's still the guidance that's on the book, even though not everybody follows it. What are some of the common symptoms we are seeing, uh, doctor, with this variant? And how do they differ than some of the symptoms that we saw a year or two years ago? It's still the same general spectrum of symptoms. Fevers, chills, muscle aches and pains. Sore throat seems to be more common in this era of COVID-19 than in the earlier era. Loss of taste and smell, which was something that people talked about a lot in the very beginning, that's become less and less common. And it's not necessarily that the variant is what causes the symptoms to change. It's also your immune system, because by this time, three years into the pandemic, many people have antibodies, T cells that are reacting to this virus. And remember, all symptoms are kind of an interaction between the pathogen, the virus, and your immune system. And our immune systems are very experienced now uh, against COVID-19 because we've had vaccines, boosters, infections, all of that kind of circulating around, which influences what symptoms a person experiences. So if you've had COVID before, I know, remember, you know, two years ago, we were having this conversation about herd immunity and people who had had COVID believing that, you know, they had built up enough antibodies that they wouldn't get infected again, or if they did get infected, it would be pretty mild. Is that still the case? Like I've had COVID twice, actually, Uh, both pretty mild cases, no hospitalization, no medication, just like a cold or flu and you know, quarantine for five days, then I was okay. So someone like me that has had COVID once or twice, am I likely to get COVID yet a third time? Yeah, yes, you are. Because you have to remember that this virus is constantly evolving. And what's putting pressure on the virus is the antibodies that we have in our blood, the, the result of prior infections, the result of vaccines. That's pushing this virus to evolve, to be able to infect us despite those antibodies. And that's the common thing that happens with many respiratory viruses, including other coronaviruses, that they always reinfect us, just like influenza always reinfects us, just like common cold viruses always reinfect us, despite prior infections, because there's evolution going on. But what's different is that increasingly the virus loses its ability to cause severe disease because of that experience. Yes, it can infect you, but no, it's not really able to cause severe disease because of all the immunity that you have. Obviously, that that is for healthier people. When people are immunocompromised or elderly, some of that immunity may wane over time, and they do become susceptible to higher to, to severe disease again. That's why we give those individuals vaccines on a more frequent basis, or that's why the vaccine and the boosters and updates are much more important for a high risk group because they lose that that ability to to stave off severe disease. But yes, you can get reinfected. This virus is always going to be reinfecting us uh, throughout our lifetimes, just like many other respiratory viruses. And so a lot of conversations you and I had a year ago, year and a half ago, were around uh, African-Americans and the fact that African-Americans were uh, you know, getting COVID at, at a greater rate and experiencing more severe symptoms because of underlying health conditions and, and other de- uh, determinants of health. Is that still the case? So in this current rise, this this summer or going into fall, this increase in cases, how is it impacting different uh, ethnic and racial groups differently, if at all? Oh, I haven't seen strong data yet to break down the, the racial background of the cases that are occurring. But we know early on in the pandemic, 
as you said, African-American community was disproportionately impacted with COVID, disproportionately impacted with severe disease. And that has to do with a couple of things, as we said, uh, as you said earlier, the underlying illnesses, diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease, for example, as well as the fact that many African-Americans had frontline jobs and weren't able to social uh, to social distance as much as as other racial groups were. Some of that gap did disappear over time because the vaccine uptake became higher in, in, in the African-American community versus, for example, white males, which is the one group that's lagged, mostly because of political considerations that have prevented them or, or restrained them from getting the vaccine in high numbers. So we've seen that racial gap close, but it's certainly true that any time that there's an increase in cases, those that have underlying conditions are going to be hit harder. And we know uh, we know that those underlying conditions haven't gone away, that obesity, diabetes, kidney disease, hypertension are still much more common in the African-American community than in other racial groups. So I anticipate anytime there's a rise in cases, you're going to see a disproportionate impact on those that have those conditions. That's why if you have those conditions, it's very important to get the updated vaccine. And if you get infected with COVID-19 and you're high risk, you need to call your doctor immediately to get the drug Paxlovid, uh, which has a five-day window and can really change the course of your illness. And doctor, I got a text the other day and it's forwarded to me. So it's been going around and they say it was issued by the University of Pennsylvania CHOP advisory. And this it's kind of a long text, but basically it says that there is a new COVID Omicron XBB variant. And they say it's different. It's deadly and not easily detected. And then they go on to list the symptoms of XBB as no cough, no fever, uh, that you may have joint pains, headaches, neck pains, upper back pain, even pneumonia. Uh, they say general loss of appetite with XBB is five times more toxic than the Delta variant, and it has a higher mortality rate. Is any of this true? No, none of it seems to be true. It seems to be a piece of misinformation being forwarded around. XBB, just for your listeners, XBB is a type of Omicron. So the Omicron family tree has many different branches. The branch that's really dominant now is what's called the XBB branch. And there's no evidence about XBB causing any worsen symptoms, actually probably less symptoms um, in general because of the immunity in the population. So no, there's nothing to that. Um, the new vaccine that was just kind of approved this week is is actually targeted towards the XBB versions of Omicron, but there's no evidence from that uh, that corresponds to reality that's in that text. There's no stealthiness to it. There's no severity increase or anything like that. We've not seen that at all with any of the XBB variants. Well, this goes on to say that uh, this X XB is not detectable by a nasal swab and that their false negative cases are increasing. And so it says it means the virus can spread in the community and di directly infect lungs, leading to viral pneumonia, which in turn causes acute respiratory stress. Uh, it's become highly contagious, highly uh, virulent and lethal. And you would say, oh, that's false. Yes, it's, it's all false. I mean, there's certain information that it's true. Yes, XBB is a form of COVID. COVID can cause viral pneumonia and respiratory failure, but there's nothing special about the XBB variants that's any different than, for example, the Delta variant. Uh, and I would say that the Delta variant was probably the most severe of all the versions of COVID that we've seen. And the step from Delta to the Omicron variants, including XBB, has been one of decrease that's been associated with decreased severity. So no, I don't think that whatever that text message is purporting to be, it's likely not from Children's Hospital of, of Philadelphia. 
Uh, it's probably just a complete uh, farcical mismatch of some pieces of information mixed in with a lot of disinformation, which unfortunately is the norm today with uh, COVID-19. Yeah, we saw a lot of that two years ago. I mean, a lot of disinformation that was on the internet. Now this as this is an actual text. I got it from two different people. Uh, so it's really being spread around. Let's talk in these last couple of minutes about masks because this false text also tells you, you you should wear a mask. It tells you to go back to social distancing. And we know masks created just uh, huge political issues in this country, social distancing, closing restaurants, closing schools, closing public places. And already some schools in New York and other states have talked about a mandatory mask, which has caused, again, this backlash and this ongoing political debate. What, what do you say about mask wearing and social distancing with respect to this rise of COVID that we're seeing now? Well, we know that masks are one tool among many that can be used. And if you wear uh, an effective mask, like an N95 or its equivalent, you wear it appropriately, it does offer you protection and it also decreases spread. But it's not one size fits all. Um, some people may want to use a mask, some people may not want to use a mask. I would say if you're a high risk person, suppose you had a lung transplant and you have to go on a train trip and you're gonna be in an indoor setting with crowd and it's crowded and congregated, you should think about wearing a mask. For lower risk people, I think it's one tool that they may want to use based on their individual risk calculation. Uh, I don't wear masks in, in my day-to-day -day life. I do when I'm when I'm seeing certain patients, but but I think it's different for each person and it shouldn't be politicized. And yes, in schools and in certain or private organizations, there may be times where they have uh, targeted mask use to try and decrease absenteeism or to decrease spread if there's an outbreak going on. So they're one tool among many, and there's no reason for it to be all wrapped up into politics and, and really... Uh, cause everybody to be in their little tribes and at each other's throats. I think it's it's really um, uh, unfortunate because, um, again, we've got lots of tools. Masks are one of them. There shouldn't be anything controversial about people who want protection that use a mask, and there shouldn't be controversial if someone doesn't want to wear a mask. What about air? Because we talked a lot again two years ago about you know schools creating uh, filtration systems and people doing things outside to decrease the spread of COVID. Are those still precautions like you know, versus uh, having an indoor function, having it outdoors, particularly if you're in a, a warm climate? I think if cases are high and you're worried about spread at your event, if you have the ability to move things outdoors, that's obviously going to decrease the risk. Even opening a window can decrease the risk um, when you're trying to decrease cases. So this is another tool that you can use. And we also have a, a major movement to try to make buildings healthier and to try to increase the air exchanges in buildings. This has been a longstanding thing, not just for COVID, but for other respiratory viruses and just for the quality of the air. So that's also something that's sort of dovetailing with COVID-19 prevention. So yes, anything that you do outdoors or that mimics the outdoors is going to have less risk of COVID-19. So if you're worried about what's going on, um, if there's high, high rates of cases in your area, moving things outdoors is going to decrease that risk. But again, each person has to decide what level of risk is appropriate to them. And it's not going to be the same for each person. And I think we've got to learn that because this is kind of as good as it gets. COVID-19 is going to be with us as long as we're on this planet. So people have to learn how to risk acclimatize to it, just like they do with other respiratory viruses. Yeah. And since it is going to be with us for the rest of, of our lives, and as long as we're all on this planet, uh, you know, should we think of how do we get people to start thinking about it like the common cold? Because you're saying essentially that's what it's going to become. And it's, you know, close to being there now. 
how do we get people to change this this stigma? Because even recently, some of the people that told me they had COVID, they told me not to tell anyone. Like, you know, they were still embarrassed by it or there was some stigma associated with it. So I think it's still going to be a little bit more severe than the common cold. It's going to be more on par with influenza. But what we have to really do is have people understand that what it actually means for a virus to be endemic within us, with us. And, and people have to understand that there's not going to be a time when there's not COVID. And they have to actually kind of celebrate the achievements of science and medicine over the past three years in terms of highly effective vaccines that prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death, oral medications like Paxlovid that decrease hospitalization and death, home tests. We do wastewater monitoring uh, for, for COVID. We've got a tremendous amount of bedside knowledge that doctors have brought have learned over these past three years so that we've made COVID-19 a much, much more manageable disease. Nobody wishes that we had COVID, but we've gotten to a place where it's it's something that can't disrupt society the way it once did, but it's still going to always cause a baseline number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And we've got to use the tools that medicine and science have developed for our high-risk populations to drive that even lower. And there will also be more innovation, better tests, better antivirals, better vaccines that will that will happen, just like it does for many other respiratory viruses. But this is the norm when a when a respiratory virus establishes itself in the population, we're always going to be dealing with it. And the goal is to to shift it to an outpatient illness, to shift it to the milder spectrum. And and I think we're there. But high risk people have to be careful about it, just like they have to be careful about influenza and other respiratory viruses like RSV, for example. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dodger, for that great uh, and trusted and factual information. There's so much misinformation on the website and obviously even in text messages about COVID. Uh, disregarded. I just, you know, we just heard from a Johns Hopkins infectious disease doctor. Trust him. Everything he said is accurate about COVID. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your knowledge with us. When we come forward, we're going to be talking to Dr. John more about vaccines and who should get the latest booster. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, it's all about the rise of COVID and the new vaccines. And you just heard it from Dr. Amish Adalja that COVID is here to stay. Now, Dr. John P. Moore joins us. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology at Cornell University's Wild Cornell Medical College. A uh, friend and a trusted voice on vaccines. I'm so happy to have you, uh, Dr. Moore. I didn't know or didn't imagine that we would be having this conversation again so soon. We spent a lot of time together uh, a year and a half, two years ago, when COVID was really ravaging communities all over this country. But we are out now, or the CDC has endorsed, the FDA has approved a new vaccine. Tell us about this vaccine. It's an adjusted design from the previous booster. Uh, technically, it's based on a, the sequence of the XBB 1.5 Omicron lineage virus, which was the dominant virus around last May, June, July period when the decision on composition was taken. So at the time, it was the most current and therefore the most appropriate strain. It's only based on that one, whereas we got used to the term bivalent. The bivalent booster contained uh, another Omicron uh, lineage sequence, that was BA45, plus the original Wuhan sequence prototype, the standard 
vaccine that was introduced in 20, late 2020. So this one has dropped that old component and has replaced BA45 with XBB 1.5 and is therefore a what's now called a monovalent vaccine. Again, it only has one active component. So that's what it is, but for all practical purposes, it's a somewhat upgraded version of the booster that was around uh, all of this year. So we know uh, when the first iteration of vaccines came out, it, you know, there was the Moderna and there was the Pfizer and then there was, there was a third one, uh, Johnson & Johnson, it came out as well. If you got Moderna or Pfizer initially, is it important that you get a booster from the same company, manufacturer, pharmaceutical, uh, as the initial vaccine that you receive? Like, if you had Moderna, should you be getting a Moderna booster? Oh, well, the simple answer to that is no, it's not important. There are going to be three versions of this new booster. The Moderna version and the Pfizer version were approved this week. The Novavax version is due to be approved any day now. It was a few days or weeks behind with the paperwork to get past FDA and CDC, but it's uh, likely to be approved in the near future. That's a different design. That's a protein-based vaccine uh, of a more traditional old-school design. It's the one that I took in phase three clinical trials in 2021. So I have a lot of direct knowledge of that vaccine. It's one I like, and it's the one that I'll get when it's approved. But in answer to your question, it really doesn't matter. You can mix and match these with perfect safety, no difference in safety, and with uh, very similar potency. You know, any differences are not worth worrying about. So either go with the one you know and like, or go with a different one. The Novavax one is reputed to be uh, somewhat easier on the arms, the side effects, the short-term sort of sore arm and headache type side effects for more people are less than they were with the mRNAs, but you know, it's not a huge factor, but it, for some people, they may find that one more convenient. And again, just give us that education again, Dr. Moore, vaccines don't prevent you from getting the virus, correct? Vaccines lessen symptoms and impact of the virus? Is that accurate? Yeah, they can provide some additional protection against mild infections. And in 2021, when the, the, the vaccines were first rolled out and before the variants evolved, there was actually quite a strong protection against any infection. But over time, because of the variation of the virus increasing, that's become less and less. But it's not zero. There will be some protection for maybe one or two months against mild infections. But it's, it's hard to, to quantify that because we don't do clinical trials anymore on that kind of scale. But we already have, for people who've got a lot of what we call antigenic exposures, now that, by that I mean a history of vaccination and or earlier infections. So each one of these events counts as an exposure to the virus proteins or the important virus proteins. And the more you have, the more your immunity against severe disease builds up over time. So if you've had four vaccine shots plus a mild Omicron infection, 
you've got a lot of protection against severe disease already and and, and another, another booster might top it up a bit but you've already got pretty strong protection against severe disease so the people who are finishing up in hospital at the moment and if there has been a you know a bit of a blip upwards it's somewhat exaggerated compared to but certainly a lot less than what we were used to seeing but the people who finished up in hospitals over the summer are almost invariably unvaccinated and there's very little we can do now to change that unfortunately or people with pre-existing health conditions and we we know you know by now we know very much what they are people who have immunocompromising conditions and there are well over a million of them of them in america so it's people with serious health conditions who are most at risk of hospital grade disease and who will benefit most from an additional vaccine dose so the messaging should is targeted or should be targeted at getting back additional dose into the people who are most at risk what about those people, Dr. Moore, could be people like me. I don't have this opinion, but some people say, look, I've had COVID once, twice. Some people have had it three times or more, and they feel like they have natural antibodies built up because they've had the virus so many times and say, well, I don't need the vaccine. Is that an accurate statement or is that a false statement? Well, it's true to an extent. The more exposures you have to virus and vaccines, the stronger the level of immunity you will have, particularly against severe disease. But, you know, if you're traveling, if you're planning to travel at Thanksgiving, Christmas, the last three years, we've seen an increase in infections around that time period. And getting an additional vaccine dose a few weeks before you travel, if you're going to see a family and you've got an elderly relative who might be in poor health compared to yourself, getting another vaccine dose a few weeks before you travel so that the antibody levels are kicked up again uh, could be valuable, it, for protect, not only for protecting yourself against mild infections, but also for protecting the people you come into contact with. Because if you're not infected, you can't pass it on to someone else. And we know, uh, Dr. Moore, that you know, we, we watched this country be torn apart by the misinformation like this text message that we just read together uh, that purportedly is from uh, a children's hospital of Philadelphia, which you said is completely bogus because no healthcare provider would use the language in this uh, text message. But we know there's so much misinformation, disinformation on the Internet. People are torn apart over vaccines, you know, the anti-vaxxers. Uh, is that still an issue? Are we still seeing, you know, large portions of our population who are vehemently opposed to vaccines, not because of science, but because of politics? And what impact, you know, does that population of people have on the rest of us? I want you to answer those questions when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I am back. And in the last 10 minutes of the show, Dr. John Moore is going to help us understand what's going on with anti-vaxxers and what impact they may have on us because we're talking about the new vaccine, uh, who needs to get it and how soon you should get it. And before you talk about the anti-vaxxers, Dr. Moore, can you just tell us who should be getting this vaccine and if there are any restrictions on any, uh, you know, body that shouldn't get it? Well, CDC has approved a new booster for pretty much everyone with a pulse. Um, it's a broad <laughs> spectrum approval across virtually all age groups. 
some groups need it more than others. If you're in a risk group for severe disease, which tracks with age because age is a proxy for health in general, although there are a lot of healthy elderly people, your immune system does diminish with age. Uh, anyone who's got a serious pre-existing health condition, uh, particularly immunocompromise, anything your physician says will give you a reduced ability to defend yourself against uh, a respiratory virus infection. That, th those groups of people are the ones in most need. For younger, healthier people, a lot of people, I think, will just skip it. Um, they've just fed up. They don't see the need. They're less frightened than they used to be. But as I said earlier, something to consider is if you're coming into contact with elderly or less healthy relatives and friends, you might want to think about the benefits to them of protecting yourself from even mild infections that just might be transmissible. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty because we don't have any real data at this stage on how well this new booster will perform, but it will give some additional protection against mild infections for a month or two, and that might tide you over the um, Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. Christmas holiday travel periods. Okay, and, so and, pretty uh, much everybody should get it, and yeah, definitely if and, you're going to be around. You know, there's uh, also this subtle point that, there are a lot of people out there, just as there are people who refuse to be vaccinated, there are a lot of people out there who agonize about getting COVID and long COVID and, and any, you know, anything that makes them sick. And they get themselves in a bit of a mental frenzy. They're not particularly mentally robust about this. And that's not a criticism. It's just a statement of how people see this. Um, and having another booster available may give them peace of mind. And sometimes just feeling better about yourself and your daily life is a sufficient justification. Okay. No, absolutely. So talk to us about the anti-vaxxers. We know we saw, you know, lots of people online, lots of people uh, professing, uh, you know, all kinds of weird conspiracy theories about vaccines, how they were made, uh, you know, what impact they would have on your bodies and literally going out persuading large groups of people not to get vaccinated. And this is when we had the more deadly uh, Omicron strain. Are, are those anti-vaxxers uh, still, uh, you know, are they in large numbers? Are, are you still seeing large numbers of people who are just refusing uh, the vaccinations? Well, around 30% of Americans have refused to be vaccinated, and that's a higher rate of refusal than in pretty much any industrialized country with vaccines readily available. So that the anti-vaxxer movement has had a very significant impact on them. And estimates a year or so ago were that over 300,000 Americans died unnecessarily who would have been protected by a vaccine, but have refused to take it. So 300,000 died because they were not vaccinated. Yeah, 300,000 wow. died avoidably. The vaccine was available. They chose not to take it and they died unvaccinated. And that's a lot of blood on the hands of wow. the vaccine movement. Do we know what the demographics are, Dr. Moore, of that group? Uh, I, I have not. I have not seen. I, I, it's probably out there. Uh, if you ask me to uh, to have an opinion as opposed to what's in the publications, minority communities would be particularly badly affected by that kind of disinformation because minority communities had a lower vaccine uptake than almost anyone 
and they're highly susceptible to this kind of disinformation that is spread to them because a lot of it is put out with racially charged messages. So, you know, I, I could look that up and I should look that up. But yeah, I, I think minority communities were particularly disadvantaged by that. So yes, there's a lot of lies out there. The same people continue to spread it. It was the movement was energized when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. stood stand, still standing for the Democrat presidential nomination because he got a lot of airtime and a lot of media coverage that allowed him to further spread the kind of lies he's been spreading for years. So and, and there's a lot of money behind the anti-vaccine movement. You've got to, you know, these are not pure individuals there are people in who run alternative medicine businesses i mm. mean the likes of alex jones are anti-vaxxers and they will peddle at you colloidal silver which will protect you again cure you against anything so the more people they turn away from vaccines and and drugs that work the more people who might buy their products and they become multi-millionaires and yeah, I'm thinking about all the, the things people were talking about, all the vitamins and the supplements and all of the quote unquote organic and natural things that they were taking to build up their immunities that were, they, you know, professed to be superior to the quote unquote poison of vaccines. Uh, and you're right. So many communities, particularly communities of color, fell prey to a lot of that disinformation. Well, remember, everything you buy, someone makes a buck out of it. And yes, <clears throat> vaccines make the, the vaccine companies a lot of money. And now the charges per dose are going to be around $130, hopefully covered by insurance for most people. But you know, well, let me stop for a second, Dr. Moore. Are we going to see vaccines in drugstores like before? Are you going to be able to go to your Walgreens and CVS? And if you do, is that where you're going to be expected to pay this $130? Yes, they should be distributed in the same way that they've been distributed for the last couple of years. I mean, healthcare providers in general, uh, over-the-counter you know, over uh, pharmacies. The government is now not paying for the latest dose. Insurance companies will pay it, so there will be more paperwork involved. Either you get it free up front and the insurance company is charged directly, or there may be a reimbursement, depends on your policy. Um, Medicaid and Medicare will cover it as well, but there there will be a somewhat of a difference. But most Americans will not have to pay for it, it, it directly. I mean, except through insurance. And do you think that that's going to be an impediment for people? I, I mean, you're saying insurance, but yeah. not everybody in this country is insured. Yeah, it's so bound to be. it's bound to be. I mean, anything that involves additional paperwork is always an additional impediment for, for people. I mean, it's an additional hassle, but the COVID money that was Congress made available has not been renewed. I mean, mm. there, it's not that the government is not willing to pay this. They don't have, Congress has not given the Biden administration the funds to do it. So yes, it will be covered for Medicare and Medicaid. And I don't think anyone who cannot pay is gonna get turned away. There are systems to do it, but you know, it's still going to be additional paperwork and so forth. And, you know, there was a lot of debate about children and, you know, there were special vaccines that were targeted to children, particularly school age children. We saw a lot of debates about schools, shutting down schools, masking at schools. But you said this vaccine is coming out. It, it doesn't differentiate if you're five years old or 80 years old, you're going to get the same vac vaccination. Uh, the childhood 
version. I think it's been approved for five and upwards, and uh, a, a pediatric younger child is up, the approval is on is on the way. Um, it's a reduced dose, so children are smaller, so the body weight is smaller, so you need a lower dose of any medicine for a child, and the vaccine dose is adjusted to make it size appropriate. It's, I think it's different for the 5 to 11 group and then for the adolescents. And side effects. I, I remember the first vaccine that I got, there were some side effects uh, associated with them. What I know you said this Novavax seems to have a limited side effects, but if you're getting the Moderna or the Pfizer, what should you expect in terms of any potential side effects? probably what you've previously experienced. If you had a side effect to your previous booster, you would probably get something similar if you take the same vaccine. It, the, the dynamics of the interaction with the body are, are the same. And, you know, it is something that different people have a different experience with. I never felt any of my vaccine doses. Um, I, maybe I'm because I'm a frog or something, but I never feel anything. But other people do. And, and it's well acknowledged. It's yeah, it, it, it is unfortunate that there are these short-term side effects, but they almost never last more than a day, and they're an inconvenience, but getting sick with COVID is more of an inconvenience. And given the, what Dr. Dodger said about COVID being more like influenza, it's going to be with us forever. Quickly, uh, long COVID, you mentioned that. Is this variant that we see now, is it, does it have the potential to give people long COVID? Every variant has the potential to cause long COVID. There's no, there's no variant that has been found that is different from any other in this regard. Um, but of course, a variant that's only been around a month or so, you don't know whether it's going to cause long COVID because that's measured at three to six months. But you know, it, it is a, obviously long COVID is real and it can happen after even mild infections, but it's not that higher percentage right. of population and for most people they clearly do not have long COVID but a small unfortunate fraction do and it can vary very much in severity and longevity it does seem to be getting better over time right you know the, the people who got long COVID in 20 and 21 are starting to recover now some of them anyway well, that's great news. We are out of time. Uh, again, Dr. Moore says get your vaccine. It's available, should be available with your healthcare provider, will be available in drugstores around this country. Protect you, protect your loved ones, and protect your community. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to see you, Dr. Moore. Always right, appreciate well. your trusted uh, advice on these really complex issues. Next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.